namo tassa bhagavato arahato samma sambuddhassa namo tassa bhagavato arahato samma sambuddhassa namo tassa bhagavato arahato samma sambuddhassa bhutang dhammang sankhang namasami So today is uh, one part, half moon day, and this is the first time since I've arrived, newly arrived at Amaravati, that everybody's here at once. It's very nice to see. So today I wish to, to talk about the what concentration, thinking, concentration, and reflection. These are the words that we use in what we call meditation, Buddhist meditation. And so these are people oftentimes, you know, we're conditioned to think, just our cultural conditioning, our whole sense of a separate self, they're all words, thoughts that we've learned in, in whatever language was your native tongue. So it's an acquired conditioning process. Thinking is a it's all sankharas, all words are sankharas, or conditions that are created by people who may not be enlightened in any way at all. Just a way of communicating about condition, other conditions. And so <clears throat> we have a lot of problems in world societies today because of the conditioning that uh, people have, whether you're a leftist or a rightist or a Muslim, a Buddhist, Christian, a Jew, whatever, it's all been conditioned into us. So we, we listening to the news of the day about racism in the United States, you know, this, people have these, they're conditioned to to hold to kind of racist views. This is done, you know, this conditioning isn't chosen, it's it's a given to us by our mother, father, peers, family, society that we're born into. So just living here in Europe, we have you know, everybody here is very, it's very international. So we're strongly identified with whether you're English or Scottish or French or Thai, 
Swiss, German, American. These are very strong perceptions that were instilled in us, conditioned or programmed like a computer when we're very young children. So we are the victims of this conditioning. We can't help it. We didn't ask for it. It was uh, imposed on us, um, you know, con considering that our parents and the societies we live in are, have, have the same conditioning. Concentration is when we stop thinking, but, you know, letting the mind wander in thought by concentrating on one object. So like mindfulness of the breath is you concentrate on, on uh, the inhalation, exhalation of your own nose. or the way the body's breathing. Like I first learned um, mindfulness of the breath at Wat Mahatad in Bangkok, where it was observing the rise and fall of the stomach. So uh, that's my first experience in kind of formal meditation practice, to concentrate on something uh, that you're, you're, you're observing you're not looking at your nose, but you're feeling it. Or we can look at an object like a casino, a colored casino or a candle flame. You know, so as we focus on one thing, one object, one sankara, one condition, one phenomenon, then, you know, you, you learn to shut out all the, the wandering tendencies of the mind, the thinking mind, to focus on just one condition and, and trying to suppress all the other imp imposing conditions that we're experiencing. So we tend to seek seclusion and, and quietness when we get very upset when when noise, people slam doors or rustle or cough or dog barks, we can just, when they interrupt our concentration, can make us very, can arouse all kinds of negative reactions. Because the desire to be tranquil is very, you know, is a very tempting desire to, to tranquilize the mind to stop it from its proliferating madness. So when I was learning Thai, in the first year at Wat Pa Pong with Lung Po Cha, I asked Ajahn Cha what the Thai word for crazy, crazy person is. And he said, somebody who thinks too much. And I thought, that's, that's a very good accurate description. You know, you're just obsessed with your own thoughts, emotions, fears, habits. The sense of a self is, is, uh, is all conditioned, you know, so what you believe you are, what you think you are, what you've been told what you are, you know, can be, 
it's conditioned into you. You know, so if you have very loving, warm-hearted, wise parents, they they tell you you're very good. Or if you've got parents or conditions that are critical and and uh, not conducive towards self-respect, then you you suffer from. having not any self-respect. You see yourself as not good enough, inferior, or bad. Then in propaganda in wars, you know, you have to spread propaganda about the enemy. Make them look like they're all evil. The enemy are all monsters and and aliens and heartless without emotions because you know if you see all other human beings as in this way with the way of wisdom way of wisdom then who would want to kill another human being but if you've been conditioned to believe the enemy is is evil and should be annihilated then we're quite willing to do so so we're pro- this is the programming of a human individual human being that we're reflecting upon. So if we were just robots, you know, without any other refuge, we would would be no way we could get beyond the conditioning that that we've received beyond our egos, beyond our personalities, beyond our emotions, beyond our cultural, social, religious conditioning, getting outside, uh, getting beyond the language, the thinking habits we've developed. And so reflection is the ability to observe. It's the, the witness position. We use the puto mantra. Because then, that's not it's not meant to just condition you, but it's a skillful means using the word Buddha, which is a reflective ability. The Buddha, you know, in terms of how we see the the historical Buddha, Gautama the Buddha, the Sakyamuni Buddha, as someone who's enlightened. So then we we can believe that you know, that the historical Buddha was enlightened, so we must believe everything he wrote, or he didn't write anything actually, but everything he taught. But when we look at the teachings of the Buddha that are available to us now in the modern societies on internet, it's available everywhere, all over the planet, it's not, you know, it's, it's reflective teachings, teachings that get you to reflect, to witness. So there's no kind of categorical imperatives or things that, doctrines that you must believe in. You know, it's not, it doesn't start from from doctrinal positions. So that's why I have such great value and respect for the Four Noble Truths, because I found 
you know, that in my life as a Buddhist monk, this this basic teaching, this first sermon of the Buddha was was struck me as being very profound. When I first encountered it, you know, I didn't quite understand it. You know, the, why why someone would give their first sermon after enlightenment about suffering and, and call it a noble truth. But that's not a doctrine. Isn't the noble truth isn't about believing in suffering, but witnessing, observing it, understanding it. And that's reflective awareness. You're not concentrating on suffering. You're not trying to, to get rid of it or judge it, you know, or do anything with it, but observe it, witness it. So puto then is a witnessing position. Because in traditional Pali Buddhism, the Buddha knows Dhamma. This awareness then in each of us, this awakened, observing, witnessing position isn't judgmental. It's not saying whether what you're feeling is right or wrong or what you're thinking is good or bad, but it is a sankhara, so, so a phenomenon. It is what it is. So reflection is, is, is the observer position, the witness. Puto is a witnessing position. It can be used as a mantra, just like one can use it just to calm down the thinking mind, like any mantra, any and uh, Pali chanting does. But it's not meant to be just a, a calming mechanism for tranquility, but a position that's available to all of us of opening to the present moment is like this. So this is, this is a wide open position. It's not concentrating on anything. It's using the first noble truth of dukkha, of suffering, suggesting, not demanding. We understand it not believe it or get rid of it. So the insight is to understand suffering. And to understand some, something, you must witness it. It's like this, rather than just react to it. Like the personality is, is reactive. The ego, the sense of a separate self is very reactive. So we, we're conditioned to react to suffering. We don't want it. Nobody wants it. It's not wantable. But it is a noble truth because it's available here and now. Even within the, uh, you know, in, even in the states of tranquility, you know, the, that type of tranquility that is done through concentration is impermanent. 
you know, because it's depending on, on, on the environment and your, and one's ability to, to just focus, uh, and let go of everything till you're just one with the object that you're concentrating on. But in the vipassana realm, when they, when we talk about samatha vipassana, vipassana is investigation, looking into the way things are. And of course, the guidelines for the way things are is that all conditions are impermanent. Dhamma is not a person, not a separate self. For many of us who were brought up in Christianity or Judaism, you know, we we were conditioned to believe in God. So God becomes something you believe in. So that's conditioning. So in modern life, atheists or skeptics say to you, you know, or uh, born-again Christians ask us, do you believe in God? But what do you mean by that word? Now, this is investigating, isn't it? What do you mean by, what what is meant when you say, do you believe in God? What do you believe in? So these are the questions, you know, the skeptical mind mentality tends to ask because we've already been told what God is. It's, you know, the Heavenly Father or the, you know, it's, it's clearly defined, in, in, but it's something very separate. And usually personified in, in a male figure. So God, you use the word he rather than she or it. But then when you question, you know, just it's not trying to believe there isn't any God. Just if you've never investigated anything, you just don't like, don't believe in what others tell you about God or in what the Christians or the Jews say. <coughs> then you, you tend to say you don't see it as reasonable or logical. And then you have you know, whole cultural developments based on religious beliefs. Like here in Europe, it's, a, you know, basically the culture is, is very much aligned with Christianity. But in terms of investigation, we're not denying God. We say, does Buddhists believe in God? Do, you know, it, at interfaith meetings in London years ago, I used to attend, you know, they, they, I'd be representing Buddhism and all the other religions would be talking about God or Allah or some form of, of supreme deity. And, uh, and oftentimes they would see Buddhism as a kind of humanistic the, the uh, philosophy or a psychology. 
than even question about it as a religion. Because there's nothing in Buddha Dhamma that, that uh, demands a belief in God. They talk about gods like Indra and Brahma and so forth. But those are cultural conditions. Those are words in Buddhist, Hindu Buddhist religious culture. You know, they're, they're sankharas. Their words, they mean always something very high and something very perfect. But in Vipassana meditation, you're not, you're not asked to believe in God, but to understand suffering. Because this realm that we're experiencing through these five khandhas, through the sentient operation of the eyes, nose, ears, tongue, body, and mind, these are all phenomena changing according to other conditions. So uh, instead of believing in a kind of eternal life in heaven, when, when the question of what happens when we die, you know, what, where do, what do Buddhists believe? Uh, life after death or the reincarnation or rebirth or heaven or hell or oblivion. You know, these, you know, in the reality of the here and now, these are words that affect us. You know, like being eternally happy in a heavenly realm sounds you know, can, you know, if you believe in that, that's very positive. Makes you feel, uh, you know, death might not be so bad. Some people believe that, that that God is a judge. You know, so you're judged by your sins you've made as a human being. So when you die before God lets you into heaven, you have to be pay pay the price you know, through some kind of ceremony or system that will allow you to uh, expunge the false sins you've made as a human individual while you're in these forms before you can get into heaven or you go to hell or limbo or there's a, words that convey, uh, you know, limbo sounds rather empty and meaningless, hell is very colorful. You know, and you go into some Buddhist salas in Thailand, they have pictures of the hell realms. They're very scary, very colorful. You know, about if you drink alcohol or commit adultery or tell lies or steal, you know, each hell has its separate horror presentation. So heaven and hell are words that we, you know, some people believe that in, in heaven and hell and believe in God, believe in and not believe in God. 
So not believing in God is still not wisdom, is it? It's, if you haven't investigated what, it's a word that's worth investigating. Just like suffering, witnessing. So rather than taking a stand as an atheist or agnostic or a theist or believer, the Buddha invited us to reflect on the way things are in a very direct way. So it's a very direct teaching. You know, what could be more mundane, more banal, more ordinary for any of us sitting here in this cell than suffering. The societies we're living in are all suffering. The families that we identify with suffer. So suffering or dukkha is 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 the common bond that we share with all human all humanity. You know, it's, it's, it's what we all experience living in these very changing forms, mortal forms of human bodies, male or female, black or white, you know, whatever the, uh, the color, the skin, or, or the gender that one identifies with, it's all, you know, conditioned. And then we have viewpoints about it. Are men superior to women or women superior to men? And then we take positions. You know, this is not investigating, this is taking a position, you know, about something's better than something else or one is above another. And, and so the conditioned realm is very uh, kind of, it's hierarchical, it's structured. You've got high and low, good and bad, right and wrong. So on the level of conditioning, of conditions, of phenomena, of sankharas, you know, they're all in a structure of, uh, you know, it's a, it's a judgmental system. And, and cultural conditioning is very judgmental, isn't it? You're punished when you're bad, when you, when your mother, when you disobey your mother, you get scolded. When you obey your mother, you get kissed. And you go, you go to school and you uh, do all your homework, you get praised. You don't do your homework, you get criticized. So the conditioning process, reward and punishment, is very much, you know, the, 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 con, the sangsara conditioning process that we're all exposed to when we're, we're born in these separate forms. Then if we believe in God without investigating it, then God is something separate because it's, Usually, you know, connected to heaven, something above the earth. 
we consider God as the great patriarchal judge who tells us what's right and wrong and rewards us or punishes us accordingly to our behavior. So then we operate from these positions. We can't help it. Our personalities are like this. You know, living in a community like here at Amravati, you know, is there any monk or nun that have the same personality? All the nuns have the same personality, all the monks, all the lay people. You know, the personality varies. In nationality, too, it's different. But then even in, if we're all British, still the personality of each person is different, unique to itself. Sometimes we say good personality or not any personality. Or, and I remember as a teenager growing up in the United States, you know, to insult somebody, say they have no personality. Because the word personality became a vibrant concept in my generation. To have a lot of personality was a good thing. To have no personality meaning you were boring, uninteresting. But personality, sakyaditi, or ego, what is meant by that? You know, so you've got the Pali word, sakyaditi, which is the first fetter, first obstruction that is mentioned in the suttas that prevents us from seeing the path the way of non-suffering. So, we so we're not trying to get rid of the personality because it's not about judging it, whatever your personality might be, whether it's wonderful personality or boring personality, doesn't matter. That's not the issue about whether it's, uh, you know, good or bad, but it is like this, and we, and this is the Bhutto, the Bhutto position of awareness. So I'm not judging when I'm reflecting on personality, my personality. I'm, you know, I, I tend on a on a personal level, I tend to judge it, make value judgments about it have opinions about me as a person. So that's Sakyaditi. But awareness, reflective awareness, is not judgmental. It's, it's just note, observing, witnessing how I react, how the reactions are to praise and blame, success and failure, good fortune or misfortune. social positioning, cultural conditioning, religious conditioning. And so it's, it's not trying to promote Buddhism above Christianity or any other religion. It's not about which is the best religion. Or the, even in the Buddhist realm, isn't it? It's, Mahayana sounds, you know, 
Theravada is is regarded by many other Buddhists as Hinayana, which is a lesser form. Mahayana is the great vehicle. Vajrayana is the, another higher vehicle. So you get into, you know, the basics, Theravada, Hinayana, Mahayana. What is all this? What is the reality of these words is that they arise and cease. So we're not trying to find the highest, the best form of Buddhism as we, you know, as, as we hear about these different forms or what other people tell us. Because in Theravada, we, you know, we can easily believe that we're the real teaching of the Buddha, the, the original true form. So we can pride ourselves on going back to basics and not all the elaborate additions of Mahayana and Vajrayana. So we, we concentrate, we pay our attention in Four Noble Truths and the suttas, the Pali suttas. We become Theravadan Buddhists and we form opinions about other, other about Mahayana, Vajrayana. It, what are we doing? You know, what, is this witnessing or just believing? We want ours to be the best. You know, if you're committing your life to, to a religious practice, you want to have a kind of certainty that it's, it'll get you to the enlightened stage to be released from suffering. Whether it's going to heaven or becoming enlightened. So notice language, we can't help it with language. It's about good, better, best, bad, worse, worst. That's, the, that's what all languages function on this very dualistic level. That's, their, that's the way they're constructed. They're divisive. You know, so they divide big and small, night and day, male and female. And that's what, when we attach to words, to concepts, you know, we're caught in this divisive conditioning process that we're very much uh, aligned with in our lives. But in Vipassana meditation, investigating practice, we're not aligning ourselves with any belief system, but looking at, observing, witnessing. Suffering is like this. Wanting something you don't have. Not wanting something you have that you don't like. What is that awareness that can, can observe desire in its various forms? You know, and then you ask yourself, can one desire observe another desire? The desire to see non-desire, desire to get rid of sin and anger and greed and hatred and, and jealousy and fear, desire to get rid of that. Is it a desire to get rid of desire, or are we just observing desire? Wanting, not wanting is like this. 
And learning to trust this open position of awareness. It's open. It's not concentrated on an object. When we take suffering, you know, the first noble truth, we, we, we're not looking at suffering externally, you know. We, we can see a lot of suffering and read about a lot of suffering in the news and the world around us. We can see in the community people that are suffering. There's not observing other people's suffering. It's not like looking outward and feeling sorry for all the suffering humanity that we hear about or imagine. But it's observing just this, this feeling of lack of something missing of self-consciousness. You know, just feeling of loneliness. And it's like this. So in monastic life, you know, you have the, this particular form, this traditional form, Vinaya form, So it, it's, it, you know, it's, uh, it's meant to help us to simplify life so we can, we can be aware of suffering, wanting things. When we're, we don't have any form when we're to live by, just by the way we've been conditioned or what the society is like in the present time, the present generation, you know, we don't know, quite know how to handle it. We can criticize it. You know, as you get old, you know, my generation, octogenarians in their 80s and 90s are now, you know, wondering what the younger generation is up to. You know, you don't understand it because I was conditioned at a totally different time. So this is the problem parents have with their children, you know. You want your children to be like yourself, or uh, being head monk or head nun of a monastery. You want, you want the, the uh, other monks and nuns to, to conform to what you think uh, uh, they should be according to your own perceptions. And this is how we're conditioned. This is not a real permanent person. This is conditioning like a computer programmed by somebody else. So in this awakening process, we call awakening or enlightenment, is the simple reality of, of witnessing sankharas rather than operating from the sankhara position, the ego position, what I believe, what I think, what I want, what I don't want, what's right according to what I believe in, 
what's wrong according to what I believe in. <clears throat> you know, this is all conditioned. So the Vinaya is all about action and speech. So it's, a, it's an agreement. When you request to enter the Sangha, you, you're given the, you know, Sangha agrees to let you operate within the structure, this traditional structure. So it's only about action and speech. So we, the conformity is on that level. It's not asking you that you believe everything I say or all the Buddhist teachings or that you've got to be, you know, hold Theravada Buddhism above everything else or you've got to get rid of interest in any other forms of science, psychology, philosophy or other religions. It's not a divisive position, the Bhutto position is not divisive about what is right and the best, but it's a witnessing. Witnessing is also a position, but it, it, the word itself conveys a observing rather than judging. So when I, when we use the phrase, it's like this, it isn't a dismissal. You know, it's not like a kind of resignation, well, life is like this, and kind of resign yourself to fate or misfortune or anything like that. So it's not a kind of passive uh, resignation to misery, but it's an open to receive misery, you know, fear, jealousy, anger, greed, wanting something you don't have. You know, in, in my life as a Buddhist monk, you know, witnessing so many people disappointed with meditation because they haven't gotten what they wanted from it. They haven't become enlightened. They don't even know if they've entered the stream or that they're sotapanas. So they, you know, this is, you know, you hear this quite often of people dedicating their lives to religious practices, spiritual development, and then feeling embittered at the end of it because they didn't get what they wanted, what they were expecting, hoping for. So this is, the, you know, the, this particular practice that we encourage here at Amravati is this witnessing practice. You're not going to get anything out of it other than you're going to let go. You're going to see through the conditioning habits, the fears and desires, the worries, the anxiety, the jealousy and fear, The self-consciousness. It is scary, you know, when, when, you're, when, you, when you're identified with your physical body. If this is what I am, this physical body, you know, it's, it, you know, and that's my sole refuge is in trying to maintain myself as a Buddhist monk and a senior monk and, and uh, 
and the body's getting old and I have to depend on others for support, you know, on a personal level, I've been conditioned the opposite direction. And then, you know, when you're 86 years old, 87 years old, you realize death is not very far away. When you're 40, you know, you think, I've got 40 more years left. Well, I was 40 a long time ago, now I'm 86. 87 this year. What happened to the 40 years that have passed? They seem like nothing, you know, it doesn't seem like you age you know, you know, on that level, mentally. The body does. So you have to adapt, you know, in old age, adapt to the limitations that just the, the body is old like this. It's not, when it's not, when you're not identified with it, when you're not seeing it as your refuge, as yourself, as your, you know, what you, you are in this vast universe, this isolated, vulnerable human form that we ignorantly identify with, when, when you do that, then there's, you know, fear is a very natural emotional reaction. But when you use the reflective ability, so I'm going to redefine it as open awareness, non judgmental awareness. You're tuning into Dhamma, into reality itself. Whether you realize it or not personally, you might not understand it at first. But when you stop looking at others and at the forms and at the, you know, stop sending your consciousness through the senses, you know, trying to figure out Buddhism or Buddhist practice according to your thoughts or what people tell you, when you learn to trust this awareness, then that is the witnessing, that's puto tammo sankho, that's Buddha Dhamma Sangha. That's refuge in of ultimate reality, here and now. So ultimate reality is not something remote that in the future, it's timeless. It's a kalika dhamma, it's timeless. It's not something that, that, that you have to get through years of meditation practice. It's learning to open to life as it is, as we experience it here and now. Whatever we're feeling, our health, our emotional state, our position, isn't really that important. Because in all, every condition ceases in the unconditioned. There is the unborn, uncreated, unformed, unconditioned. So this reference to Bhutto then is, is, you know, it's a very skillful mantra that Nungpo Cha taught me when I first met him. 
because I was very confused. I couldn't understand anatta. I spent the first year at the Samanera contemplating the first two noble truths and had, you know, clear insight into anicca, impermanence and suffering. I didn't find those characteristics difficult, but who is it? What is it aware of suffering? What is aware of suffering? What is it that is using puto that reflects on the reality of a condition present? It's like this. What is it that knows this, that is aware? And of course, I could only, before I met Lumbachai, I could only think of it's me, Sumato. That's the, that's the only reference point I had. I couldn't wipe out the sense of this subjective awareness, pure subjectivity. You know, I couldn't deny it that I'm conscious. That consciousness is here and now. And the only word I had for it is me or my name. So then, uh, asking Lung Po Cha that first year about my doubts and questions about anatta, he, he uh, advised me to use this witnessing position, Puto, or Buddha. So Buddha, you know, is much more profound than just the historical sage of the past that we believe in was enlightened. But it's a practical condition to remind us to be here and now, awakened to the way it is. So is awakening, is enlightenment something so remote, so distant, you know, that you, no matter how hard you practice, how long you sit, how concentrated you become, you, you know, you still don't feel enlightened because the personality is never going to get enlightened. My personality is it's impossible for my personality to become enlightened because it's a condition. So when I think of, am I enlightened on a personal level? You know, you realize person, personality, sakyaditi, is the first fetter, the first abstraction. And it can never know enlightenment or be enlightened. There's no enlightened sakyaditi. There's no enlightened sankhara. And that's quite obvious in these Buddhist teachings. So Puto is I found, you know, because it worked for me as a mantra, I used it as a mantra, I was, because of my, I was a rabid thinker, you know, obsessed with thoughts and ideas, interested in psychology and in philosophy and all these high-minded uh, intellectual subjects. I had a lot of fears and personal 
uh, got very per, uh, critical, self-critical person, personality conditioned to be critical of myself. And so, you know, tried to stop thinking just as a, trying, like Whipple would done, desire to get rid of thought, couldn't do it. Couldn't, couldn't get rid of it just by trying to stop thinking. You know, you stop thinking and try to hold it and eventually, you know, you start thinking again. You're thinking about not thinking. It goes around in a cycle that is pointless, futile. So then I began to reflect on the word Buddha or Puto. You know, because I identified myself as a Buddhist, ever since I was 21, I identified myself as a Buddhist. And then, the, you know, because I did really like the, the teachings of the Lord Buddha. You know, they really resonated with me. I knew there was something there that I could learn from. But I didn't know how to meditate. Didn't know how to practice it. Then in Lumpur Cha's direction, just, you know, with the morning, evening pujas, the chanting, the poly chanting, the translations, the, they translated, uh, they did this tamat prayer, this, this morning, evening chanting, translating each phrase into Thai words so you could understand it. Found that very helpful. So then I wasn't just chanting because that's part of a tradition, part of this particular tradition. But because it, it had, it had, you know, there was meaning to it. It had. It was much more profound than just repeating Pali phrases and Thai translations. Investigating, isn't it? So, what is Buddha here and now? Where is Buddha here and now? You know. So it's it's fair. This is a way of investigating. I mean, asking yourself. If I take refuge in Buddha, what am here and now? What am I doing? Is this just words that I repeat according to ceremonies and tradition, or are the ceremonies and tradition pointing at reality itself, not trying to promote tradition and form as a as what we grasp, but using tradition and form for reflection? So then, when I started giving precepts, Lumpur Chah had me start giving uh, five precepts to the lay people and so forth, uh, even as a Nawaka monk, because the Thais like to hear a Prapvrang, a foreign monk, giving the precepts. You know, so I memorized the uh, five precepts, and on the one pra, the, uh, the observance, nights, you know, sometimes 
I would be asked to give the precepts. So he gave me Bhutang Sarnangachami, Dhammang Sarnangachami, Sankang Sarnangachami. I could chant that. <clears throat> and then, then I, uh, I thought the translation, take refuge in the Buddha. What, what am I taking refuge in? What, when I'm giving these three refuges, what am I offering to lay people? Just a ceremony, you know, just a teaching in, in a foreign language? Is it, you know, is it just joining a, a cult or a group or a religious practice? What is Bhutang Saranangachami as, as the reality of here and now? What is Bhutang Saranangachami right now? And then in the witnessing position, it's, it's awareness here and now. So it's, it's, you know, you can't be more direct than that. It's not about taking refuge in some kind of Buddhic nature that you, you know, create in your mind, some kind of mystical form of Buddha in the universe. That's, uh, that's still conditioned phenomena. Or believing in there's a Buddha, Buddha, Buddha is a refuge. Can you take refuge in, in a, a sage that has passed away 2,500 years ago? And is Dhamma just the teachings, the Four Noble Truths? Is that, is that Dhamma? Or is the Four Noble Truths pointing to Dhamma? You know, in the reality of their, their limitation, they are sankara, their conditions created by others. And then this Puto mantra started resonating, you know, just through investigating what is here and now, what is awareness here and now. Santitiko Akalika Dhamma, here and now. And you can't, you know, you, this, this kind of questioning approach makes you stop thinking. You know, you stop trying to figure it out because you're open in the present moment. Because there's no answer to awareness here and now. You can't find it. It's not an object that you that you cultivate. It's not something you do. It's the reality of here and now, consciousness here and now, awakened to the reality, ultimate reality, Dhamma. So, Dhammang Sarnangatami. Dhammang, then, is no longer some abstract idea of righteousness or ultimate reality or however you want to define it. So it comes together, you know, you realize you have this insight through this kind of investigation. Not just trying to get rid of fear and anger and greed and 
confusion and anxiety, becoming a samana in order to get rid of all your selfishness, trying to get rid of your, you know, your self-consciousness. You know, so it's not like psychotherapy trying to, to change yourself into something by, by getting rid of anything, but it's about awakening here and now. So it's, this is available to all of us. The teaching is open to everyone. So, you know, this is what's so impressive about Buddha Dhamma, it's to be investigated. It's not, not about grasping it. So what is anatta? What is no self? You know, and then when you observe what self really is, you know, my thoughts very much are mine, my viewpoints, my emotions, my reactions to situations. You know, they say very personal. How many people like to talk about how they really feel about anything, their emotional stress or fears or doubts or worries? You know, in polite society, we don't talk about death or we don't talk about our feelings. We talk about the weather, something out there. Because on a personal level, so, you know, one feels sometimes embarrassed about feeling the way we do or not feeling about, you know, the, the fears, the fear or anger that we, we hold in our hearts that we want to get rid of. You know, because we, we like the idea of being a samana, being, uh, leading a spiritual life. You know, the whole idealistic, uh, beauty of the Samana life, I, found quite, I find quite beautiful as an ideal. But if I just see it as an ideal, it doesn't get me anywhere. I just feel inferior to it because I've not really investigated Sakya Ditti, personality, ego. I don't know myself. I just criticize what I see if it's not aligned with my perfect forms perfect ideas, it's, you know, then I'm, I'm wrong, you know, I've spent all these years as a monk, what have I gotten from it, you know, if, if it's on a personal level, just an old body, you know, and, and uh, you know, it's like a good life in itself, you know, even as a person. But it's getting beyond that personality, personal identity that is awakened, that is enlightenment, that is seeing things as they are. In the Sangha, we all have our challenges. <laughs> Because we have to live with each other. 
And it doesn't mean we like each other that much. You know, so some people you like more than others and some people you don't like. That's personality. That critical mind is personal. And you can be aware of it, not thinking you've got to get rid of your personality or your, your critical mind, but being the puto, the witness of personality arises and ceases. So community life is a challenge, you know, living with each other, learning to operate within the restraint of the vinaya is all, you know, part of the, the game that we're involved in. But it's not just the personal game of who plays, the, keeps the rules the best or who's the winner, but it's the invitation to open, opening to life, opening to experience, reflecting on it, not seeing that the critical mind applies only to worldly situations. You know, it's about sankharas, about good and bad, right and wrong. So it applies to sankhara, to that. And, but is God then a sankhara? You know, the, is, is what is meant by God or ultimate reality? Is God ultimate reality? Is that what it's really meant to be rather than what is usually considered to be God? Is God a patriarchal figure up in the sky? That's a belief, or you disbelieve that. So you know, you know, I don't believe that God is a patriarch up in the sky. That's still a belief. I don't still, don't, still don't understand what that is. I've been to the Sistine Chapel in the Vatican and I've seen the Michelangelo's murals where God is an old man up in the sky, very beautifully painted. So, I mean, uh, fair enough. You know, in terms of aesthetics and art, it's, it's beautiful. I don't believe it. <laughs> but believing it is the same as not believing it. It's not the point, is it? It's not about trying to, to create God or believe in, in a concept, but in awakening to Dhamma, the reality of here and now. And, it's, and it's, so it's not something distant, something remote, something impossible unless you conceive it as such. And that would take thinking, seeing yourself as some inferior form and, and, and the Dhamma is some perfect fo form that you can only worship and admire but, and assume, have a, a, you know, opinions about. Or is it here and now Santitiko, Akaliko, Ehi Pasiko, Opanayako, Bhajatang, Vaitina, Poa, Nui. So I offer this as a reflection.